Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we are scaling up on water treatment knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. I'm Trace Blackmore. I am the host of Scaling Up, and I want to give a big thank you to everybody out there in the water treatment community because many of you have written to me and you've said, hey, this is exactly what we needed, a format that we can listen to in our cars that teaches us more about water treatment, that challenges us to be better water treaters. And I want to let you know I've heard that loud and clear and I thank you for it. I would ask that perhaps you might ask your water treatment friends to please subscribe to this podcast. So our goal is to touch as many water treaters as we can and give you the information that you want to talk about. So please let me know what that is. Go to scalinguph2o.com and tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what questions you have. I'm happy to answer that. And as always, I'll keep your name anonymous. And I'll even talk to the speakers that you want me to talk to. So today's show is going to be about controllers. Have you ever really thought about what a controller allows us to do? And of course, when I talk about controllers, I'm talking about the equipment that controls our programs, whether it's a boiler controller or a cooling tower controller. But we've spent all of this time sampling the makeup water, figuring how many times can we concentrate that system before we need to open up the bleed? What is our makeup going to be like? How much are we bleeding down? How are we going to feed product? What product are we going to feed at what proportion? What biocides? All this stuff that we are designing in our systems, our controller is actually carrying out that program for us. So if you've never really thought about what a controller does, besides just sit there on our customer's wall, it allows us to go home at night. We're actually able to run a program when we are not there. That's pretty impressive. Without that, it would be a 24-hour job for us to treat that system. So we better know what our controller is capable of. And folks, let me tell you, controllers these days do so much. Back in the day, it used to be bleed and feed. When it hit a certain concentration ratio and it knew that via the conductivity, it would open up a solenoid valve and you would have two plugs hanging off of the bottom of it. You would have one that fed a pump and you would feed your inhibitor in while you were bleeding biocide out. And that was the only control that was available. Not anymore. You can do pretty much anything you can imagine. You can tie them up to the building automation systems. You can get alarms that are on your smartphone. You can tie into it on your smartphone. There's so many things that we can do that make our job easier. We're actually able to be on site via this controller when we are not on site. It's huge. So I thought the controller was such a big deal. Why not dedicate an entire show around the controller? But you don't want to just hear me talk about controllers. So I thought, why not get an industry expert in a conversation with me talking about what we should all know about controllers? So that expert is Tom Tenney. And Tom Tenney not only works on these controllers, he designs these controllers. He knows them inside and out. Tom works for Lakewood Instruments. 
And whether you use Lakewood controllers or something else, it's all good information. It applies universally. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tom Tenney. I'm here today with Tom Tenney of Lakewood Instruments. And Lakewood Instruments received the Supplier of the Year Award from AWT in 2011. And actually, that was very special for me because I was president of AWT in 2011, and I had the honor of presenting them with this award. Uh, Tom, how are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good, Trace. I'm glad to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, by the way, that, that 2011 award was uh, – the AWT award is significant as a supplier because uh, – the, the AWT doesn't send out a list of nominees. The nomination list comes from the people saying, we like these people, we like this particular supplier. So it, it is really a vote from the people that are using you uh, with no other influences. And when you win it, it that's just huge. That's just It's a great honor. So we, we were really excited about that award. Well, you guys definitely earned it. And for those of you that don't know Lakewood, uh, incredible guys, incredible equipment, and incredible service. So uh, uh, Tom's a great friend of mine, and I've known Tom for years, and as hard as it is to believe, there may be one or two people out there that don't know you, Tom. So for those one or two people, do you mind uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? No, uh, no problems. So for those of you from Eastern Mongolia that haven't heard of me, uh, I am the Director of Engineering and Sales for Lakewood Instruments, a uh, water treatment controls company for cooling towers, boilers, and processes. Uh, we design and manufacture our own equipment here in the U.S. And I've been at this since about 19, I think 95. Uh, side story, Lakewood Instruments, small company at the time. Uh, a bunch of us knew each other from the aerospace industry. And uh, over a very short period of time, Lakewood Instruments tapped that pool. And at uh, one time, we had huge horsepower in that building. So it propelled the product line. And uh, I was part of that incoming wave. Uh, so, been at this for a while, really kind of comfortable with the or instrumentation and the industry as a whole. So, Tom, confirm this rumor to be true, but I have heard that if you watch Die Hard and you're actually looking at the roof scene when Bruce Willis and Hans are on the cooling tower, if you look very closely, you can see a Lakewood controller. Is that true? That is indeed true, and my wife thought I was insane because she bought me the movies on Blu-ray for Christmas. And I was watching them, and I freeze the movie, and I run up to the screen, and she goes, what are, what are you doing? I go, that's a Model 412. That's our old Model 412. And she's like, I, I, you can't tell that. And I scrolled it back and froze it on it, and I said, there it is. Took a picture of it. We all circulated it amongst ourselves, and uh, it was an interesting uh, piece. I called the building that was used as the Naka, Nakamina, Nakamuchi? Nakanishi Towers. Not yet. And, and, uh, it's actually a Fox, uh, studios building. Talk to the maintenance guy. And up until a couple years ago, it was still there and they finally had to upgrade it. So that controller was originally sold to them back in 1988 and was on until just a couple of years ago doing, doing its thing. So it was very, very, very cool. We were, we were kind of excited about it. So how about that? So I'm sure all of our viewers are going to go home and watch Die Hard just for that scene. Yeah, it takes a while, but there's yeah, you'll you'll see it. Pan, camera pans left, and there's that blue box. So. <laughs> well, well, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the water treatment industry? Um, I, I, again, it, I was an electronics guy, an aerospace industry uh, that came to Lakewood as part of their tech service and instrumentation group. 
Um, and we elevated our troubleshooting game. And we, we, we implemented a big change for the industry at the time. Uh, it used to be that when someone had a problem with a controller, the, the go-to move was just send them another controller. And, uh, you know, being from the aerospace industry, you don't do that. You, you figure out what the issue is. So we literally had a pallet of uh, broken controllers. And I started testing them, and none of them were broken. And I went to the management team and said, we've got an issue here, and it isn't our controllers. We, The guys out in the field are changing the controller out, probably having the same problem because the problem is outside the control box. We need to refine our method over the phone. And that's what we did. Uh, and it changed how, how we approached uh, customer support and changed the result for our customer because we did something no one else did, which was say, stand in front of the controller, be my hands for the next five minutes, and I will help you determine if it's the controller or your system. And by the way, if it's something in your system, let's walk through those one piece at a time and knock down each thing that would cause my controller to give you this errant reading or give you this issue. So, uh, And I, I think the, the industry now does that as a whole, but when I started back in uh, 95, we were pretty much the only ones doing that step by step. And, and throwing up the roadblock and saying, I'm not going to just arbitrarily send you another controller, that was a huge philosophical change. But I think in the end, the industry won because we did that. Well, that's actually a great lead into one of my first questions with, um, you know, Tom is one of the trainers at AWT's technical training seminars. And Tom does a great job uh, during our breakout session. Not to say you don't do a great job during the lecture part of our session as well. But uh, during the, the breakout part of the session, Tom actually shows you how to troubleshoot a controller. And something that he does that uh, I think is, uh, is good for any water trader are some, some top tips on what you need to know in order to troubleshoot a controller to, before you call in to customer service. Or, you know, what do you need to know so it's going to save you a trip from coming back out there? So, Tom, do you mind telling us some of your troubleshooting tips and what everybody should know who's listening to this program, uh, what the most common common issues are that they can probably fix themselves if they know how to do it? Yeah, thanks, Trace. I think, I think it behooves everybody to understand what's going on, first of all, with the, like as an example, we'll use conductivity. Uh, conductivity control, the controller is you on site 24 hours a day. It's controlling the, the, the accumulated dissolved solids. It's, it's key to not scaling up your tower or your boiler. So it operating correctly, reading correctly, and reacting correctly is, is the key to your success. So uh, one of the things we, we have to understand is over time, stuff is going to accumulate on those sensors. Uh, so we have to take care of them, and I think the one of the things we do or one of the things the, the field does is when you walk up and do your first initial test, you may uh, have a difference between a handheld meter and the actual uh, what, what it's reading and what's displayed on the controller. And the first inclination is for everybody to go ahead and change the calibration. Uh, my first inclination and my number one tip to everybody is stop. Go into that controller, and all the modern controllers will do this, and find the screen that allows you to initialize or wipe out all of the existing calibrations. And, and once you've done that, then the sensor is going to display what it really sees. And that's the key to your success, because if you can see what the sensor is seeing, you now know what the real difference is. So as an example, if your handheld said you had 2,000 micromoles of TDS, 
that, and you initialize the calibration and the sensor is seeing a thousand, your first inclination is to say, no, no, controller, that's 2,000. But what you've done is build in a times two lie because the controller has just told you, yes, it's 2,000, but I'm only seeing half of that, which is actually on a, on a scale, which uh, we're going to put on our website too, by the way. A scale will show you that now it's not going to see the, the large differences or the large swings as, as easily either. So you now know that it's only seeing half of what it should. If you're not within 10 or 15%, you shouldn't be tweaking the calibration. You should be looking for why you're not within that 10 or 15%. So the, 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 the second part of that, that initialization troubleshooting step is clean the darn sensor. <laughs> and by clean the sensor, I mean clean it. So you, you, you stop your flow, you pull your sensor out, you, you, you grab your shop tail rag, and then I run out of a closet with a stick and I beat you and say, don't use a shop rag. Because shop rags tend to accumulate stuff on them. They've wiped down every surface. They've been in contact with everything. And now you're about to put that onto your sensor. So the real way to clean the sensor is to scrub it or scrape it to knock the heavy buildup off. And then, then to take it and put it in a 10% muratic, maybe a 1%, or sorry, 10% sulfuric, 1% muratic. Let it sit there in that solution for a little bit to chew off a very fine coating of scale. And I know we, we never have towers that scale up. Our, our water treatment programs are perfect, so there's no possibility of the scale. But you're going to do me this big favor, guys. You're going you're gonna to put it in that acid just in case something's gone on and peel off that little coating. And, and if you really want proof that it's there even after a good scrubbing, go ahead and take that sensor and blow it off with air or shop air. Let it sit for a little bit and dry out. You'll be amazed what's still on that sensor after you do an initial scrubbing. So, so the acid's key to that. And then you're going to take that same sensor and put it in a, like a isopropyl alcohol. And uh, the reason you want to do that is that will cut off any oils or greases that accumulated. And those are insulators and they're really bad for my tips. At that point, you have a really honest to God clean sensor and you'll put that back in the system and I'll bet you're a lot closer to your original reading than you than you were initially. And at that point, that's when you can actually do a, a slight shift in the calibration by entering a new number versus going ahead and arbitrarily entering a big change. And, and Trace, we see this a lot on boilers where the in, in a boiler situation, there's actually steam at the sensor. They've read it with their handheld, they say, hey, it's three thousand micromos, the sensor's reading zero and they're forcing it telling it now, zero micromoles, you, you're not even contacting water, you're contacting stream, that's equal to 3,000 micromoles. And just imagine the confusion that causes in the controller when it actually gets a little water across its tip. It doesn't know how to read it. it doesn't, that's, that water appears huge to it, and it's time to blow down like crazy. Tom, is it safe to say that most water treaters don't know that they need to clean the probe? They simply go in and they calibrate or recalibrate every single time? I think they, they know, but I think that it, it's a, it, it tends to be a time issue or a, well, I guess I can get away with this, or I could punch in a new number, so that's okay, right? Um, I mean, from an equipment standpoint, I want to say pull it out and clean it every month. My God, you're, you're, it, it is really you and doing this important thing when you're gone, and it needs a little TLC. Um, from a boiler standpoint, I, you know, a couple of times a season, get it out of there, get it cleaned up. Uh, I know that it's a little more difficult, but we really have to think about cleaning those sensors up so that you can give it the opportunity to succeed uh, when you're not there. And the other thing is, 
um, a good indication. If you're cleaning it every time and, and it's significantly changing your readings, that's really indicating to you it's getting an accumulation on it, and you've got accumulations occurring other places as well. Not that any of us that would ever happen, but it does. It is an indicator you could have issues going on. So, well, those are some great tips. Anything else you can share with us? Paper clip. I, I, it sounds ridiculous, but my favorite troubleshooting tool when I travel is a paper clip, and it's why. I can use a paper clip across contacts for a flow switch and simulate a closure. I can use a paper clip across the contacts where a water meter would land and simulate a water meter contact. I can use a paper clip and bridge it across where the sensor tips are and make my reading shoot up. It's just a great quick check tool for all that low voltage stuff. So paper clip in hand, you can actually do a lot of troubleshooting. And the second part of that conversation is while you're you've got the paper clip you may not know what to do with it really what i'm saying is while you're in front of the controller with these tools you can go ahead and call us or call the factory and let us troubleshoot with you while you're there i i know a lot of you are being trained now to call and leave a message and remember where you were at and then you have this offline conversation so that the next time that you're at site you can do this one more test and then have an offline conversation. I think that's a ridiculous way to run a business model. And I think that what you have to do when when you're on site is say, I've got this opportunity to get the expert on the phone, have him walk me through the equipment, and then help me make a determination if it's not the equipment. And the only way you can do that is live time. And being close to the installation is the right way to do it. Don't wait till you get home to call us. Don't wait until you're driving away from the site to call us. Find a place that doesn't have a dead zone or too much noise and, and let us work with you guys and get these issues resolved. And 99% of them are just a systemic change, a slight alteration, nothing to do with a failure. But let us get you walked through that so you can walk away confidently and know that that equipment is taken care of you once you've left the site. Well, great advice. Well, in addition to a paper clip, what else should people carry with them? Um, elect, I know electricals are a scary little thing, guys, and we're, we, we tend to be chemists and think about things from a mechanical or a plumbing standpoint, but we have to learn to be electricians as well, at, at least to an extent. So I'm going to say you really need a multimeter, and you need to understand some of the functions of it so that you can measure the voltage output of a plug to make sure you've got power coming out there. You can measure across a fuse to see if the fuse has popped, if it's, if it's blown. Uh, also, you can measure for your, low, your lower voltage DC measurements. The DC part of each circuit powers all those outside devices, and understanding that that's there, uh, you have to use a multimeter to do that. The other thing we've uh, we've come up with is a some of these multimeters have the ability to measure what we call frequency hertz. Uh, Sixty hertz power comes out of your house, so the hertz is the frequency. And by using that function, we can determine if paddle wheel water meters are functioning correctly and giving you the uh, the correct output over time. So get a multimeter. I don't care if it's a five dollar multimeter with just volts and ohms on it. Or if it's a nice fluke or one of the fancier meters that has hertz and the frequency capability, uh, get a multimeter, learn to use it. And I'm telling you what, if you call Lakewood and you've got a multimeter and you say, I know nothing about this, can you tell me what to do with it? I will walk you through, we will walk you through the settings on it and what they mean and what they can do for you so you don't have to be an electrical engineer. But by having that meter in hand and understanding some of the basic settings, 
we go back to that me having you troubleshoot on site, and I can say, put this lead here, put this lead here, what's it say? Okay, the real problem is the building management system is trashing my controller, So you need, and, and here's your proof to the customer, show him that. Uh, or, yeah, you're, you're, you've got plenty of voltage out, but the pump's not working, but you've got the voltage out. So you have a problem in the pump. By, by having that multimeter, you're doing the test I would do if I was standing there. Even if you don't understand all the intricacies of the device, I can have you get it set up to where we can do the troubleshooting. So it is a tool that you're going to need for the future. And, and I think one of the last things, especially with the modern controller, is you need to have an Ethernet cable. And here's why. So many of these controllers are now Internet, Ethernet capable. And that cable, especially one that's out in the sun and so forth, can get a little dinged up. And one of your troubleshooting steps may be swap the cable out. So having a working Ethernet cable may save you a lot of hassle. And if you swap the cable out with a known cable, you can then go to their IT guy if it's still not doing its thing and say, hey, it's not the controller, it's not the cable, it's something you've done, buddy. And in the in the few years we've been doing Ethernet connectivity, uh, intranet and intranet connectivity, uh, IT people are not our friends. They are not the controller guy's friend. They are not the field man's friend because they, they do a lot of crazy stuff to mess us up. Not our first rodeo. We'll get you walked through it, but you're going to need some basic tools so we can get you walked through it, Trace. And, and I know more and more uh, people are putting their controllers online because it just saves us so much time, and we're able to make adjustments and see what's going on in the system without actually going there. So uh, if you don't have one of those controllers on your systems, I'm pretty sure you're going to get one pretty soon. Oh, yeah. yeah it, it's a coming wave. It, it is. Your customers are demanding it. They like centralized monitoring. They You, you as a water treater professional, it is a great tool for you to optimize your time usage. It, it's out there. It's here to stay, and we, we better get comfortable with being able to troubleshoot and support them. So, Tom, one of the things that you do very well at the AWT training is you teach people how to properly diagnose why a fuse is blowing a certain relay. I think that's a a fantastic tip for everybody to know. Would you mind sharing that with our audience? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite uh, kind of, I don't know, analogies or steps. When you've blown a fuse on a controller, you're going to use three fuses to fix it, and, and here's why. You're going to bring up the properly sized and properly rated fuses to the site. And uh, let's back up half a second and say all of your equipment, be it pumps, be it controllers, uh, uh, being it integrated devices, anything that's got a fuse on it, you need to pull that fuse out and look at the voltage and amperage rating, write it down, get online, and buy a little box of those fuses and throw them in your tool bag. Every piece of equipment. It isn't like the old days where we could run down to Radio Shack and get that kind of fuse. The hardware stores aren't carrying them as often now. Radio Shack has disappeared. So you need to have those fuses in hand. And every time you troubleshoot a fuse, you're going to need three. And here's why. The first fuse is you go up there and you replace the fuse that blew. But before you turn anything on, you're going to unplug everything on the controller, meaning... All of the high-voltage stuff, the 110 stuff, unplug it. All of the stuff down the right side, those typically have removable um, plugs, your low-voltage stuff, your water meters, your flow switches, your sensors. Unplug all that stuff so it's just the controller, no integration at all, just the controller. Power it up. Fuse doesn't pop. Okay, it's not the controller then. Step number two, start putting in on your low-voltage stuff one at a time. 
As you put on these low-voltage devices, if it pops the fuse, the thing you just put on, that's your problem. Typically, we find that that's the, like the water meters that are drawing a little juice or the 4 to 20 milliamp output going to a building management system. But So that's popped the fuse. Now, you're going to pull that thing off. You're going to mark it and say, don't install this. This needs troubleshooting. And you're going to put the next fuse back in so you're back up and running. So now you've used two fuses. Here's what, why I say it's the third fuse. The customer site's going to come up and go, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. And you're going to have to demonstrate it one more time by plugging it in, popping the fuse, pulling it off, and replacing the fuse. There's your third fuse. So you're going to need three fuses almost every time to do this basic popping fuse uh, uh, troubleshooting. And I will caveat this one more in one more step. In our in our baseline controllers, we actually have two fuses per controller. One's a, a low voltage fuse, a low amperage, 100 milliamp. That's for all the control circuitry, and one of them is a 10 amp, and that's for all the pumps. So by distinguishing which one blew, you may have the origin of your problem pretty quickly. As an example, if the low-voltage one isn't blown, but the, the 10 amp to the pumps are blown, then probably an accessory device, blow-down valve or pump, is popping it. And the same troubleshooting steps are required. You unplug all the devices, you power it up, it doesn't pop. You plug in the devices, they don't pop. Then you power each device on one at a time until it pops. One of them is going to pop, pull that bad boy out, mark it, don't install it again until it's fixed. So that, that's kind of the, my philosophy about fused troubleshooting. But, again, I will say it again. Every piece of equipment you touch or you're responsible for, if it's got a fuse, it behooves you to find out the rating on that fuse, the style of that fuse, and put a little bag of them. They're 5 bucks for a set. Put that in your, your kit because you're going to need them at some point in time. I don't care how long you've been in the water treatment industry. That is a great tip. And that $5 bag of fuses could possibly save you an entire day of service. So uh, that, that's well worth his weight in gold, I would say. All right, Tom, those are some great troubleshooting tips. And for those of you keeping track that we need to have a paper clip in our tool bag, a bag of fuses in our tool bag, and a multimeter, anything else we need to keep in there? Uh, one of the last things, and it, I know it's kind of an off thing, uh, not readily accessible, but a deck, what we call a decade box. It's, what it is is it's got a bunch of ohm values, ohms being resistance. And every conductivity sensor, conductance is the inverse of resistance. Resistance is measured in ohms. By having that decade box from any of the manufacturers, you can get an equivalency chart. A certain amount of resistance across probe tips equals a certain amount of conductivity. And it's really cool to use that decade box for troubleshooting because if you dial in a specific number, 2,000 micromoles, which may equal, let's say, 200 ohms of resistance, and you walk away from the controller and come back in 20 minutes and it's dead nuts on, that kind of tells you that the controller is ready to read. But if the controller is wandering around with a fixed-value resistor, hey – there's a problem inside the controller versus in, out, outside in the system. We, we Lakewood actually include a little simulator with some fixed value resistors in our easy service kit, which is kind of handy to use. And sometimes it's compatible with other manufacturers, but regardless, if you don't have a, if you're using another manufacturer's controllers, getting that decade box, that ability to dial in resistance values and scale it, go low, mid, and high with resistance values, and then see those reactions on the screen, 
that's really a big deal. That's that's an easy troubleshooting tip and a great walkaway tip, sir, for if you're going to go to lunch and come back and make sure that things are nice and steady while you're not around. Well, Tom, would you say that a lot of the problems we as water treaters face are due to the way that they were originally installed? I think that that's some of it. Uh, well, I don't, I'm, it's real indicative on a boiler system. Uh, the cooling tower, it can be. Um, let me Let me kind of... One of our big issues is outside of the box, outside of the sensor, is aeration in the water. And people go, aeration, you're crazy. No, I'm not crazy. We've run tests on this. We've simulated it. We've injected air into the system. What happens is, uh, let, let's say I've got a cooling tower set up, a controller set up, and I've got block valves, incoming block valves, on and off valves to cut off the flow. And by the way, if you don't install them during the initial installation, <laughs> you'll install them later. Because you got to have those block valves to cut off the flow and the back drain for when you want to remove the sensors and stuff for maintenance. But So I've got these two block valves, an incoming one and an exit one. I always say, incoming valve wide open, exit valve, you can use it to kind of neck off your flow. If I have my incoming valve partially open, I have a vortex formed on the back side of that valve, and that vortex causes aeration. Aeration in the water is not like fish tanky bubbles. It's where the water becomes aerated enough that the value of the water going through my sensor tips is changed because it has a more insular quality. I can't conduct electricity through air, and now I've injected air into the water. That lowers my reading. So having an installation that aeration or allows aeration to form and come through across my sensor tip is a problem. It, it, it can be caused by a half-open valve. It can be caused by having 75 bins in the pipe from the draw point to the exit point. It can be caused by uh, an in, uh, your main pump, your research pump, cavitating a whole bunch. It can be caused by a really clogged up Y strainer. That'll lower my reading. So these are that that aeration is inconsistent. It, it happens at odd times. It happens under loading, and it's something you have to take into account when you're installing the system. And we were just at a site where they ran it through pipe that was one inch to three-quarter inch to one inch. Well, that's that's an orifice, basically. That's aeration. Half-open valves, some kind of goofy, weird filter, up through a coupon rack that was all sized differently. By the time it hit my sensor, it was just agitated, aerated water. We pulled the sensor out of the system, put it in a cup of water, nice and steady, read where it was supposed to, put it back in the system, turn the water on, drop like a rock. There's your proof. It's the, and by by the time they got done, they gave me a nice straight run into my sensor, and then put all that other stuff afterwards. My reading steadied out. They were really happy with it after that. So that's part of that installation procedure on the the cooling tower. On the boiler, man, every installation has issues. But if you follow the manufacturer's recommended plumbing, and don't get creative, and don't use different size piping and follow the restriction requirements to keep the water water on our side of the uh, motorized ball valve, you will have a lot less problems. So it, I, I, a majority of our issues are where someone calls up and says, hey, I, I'm chasing calibration. It never seems to control. We do a couple of three tests with you like we've outlined before. Uh, we do a solid test. We do a resistor test. Boy, those all look good. Uh, but your, is your plumbing like our drawing? And invariably the guy will say, yeah, exactly. Well, except for this one part. And the except for this one part is, is, I'm 99% of the time the problem. 
They've gotten cute. They've, they, they went up when they should have gone down. They went small when they should have stayed the same size. They've got 17 valves open that tweak and twirl. They mounted our sensor vertically instead of uh, horizontally at the bottom of a run. They didn't follow the plumbing direction. And my first conversation with you is going to be, when you get the plumbing like our drawing, we can help you troubleshoot. And until then, it's really a, you know, excuse me, it's a crapshoot about whether we're going to solve the problem because what's introducing the issue, whether it's the plumbing or the setup or the controller at that point. So getting the plumbing right in a boiler situation is absolutely key and follow the manufacturer's recommended plumbing setup and hand it to that plumbing guy and say, follow this. And if he tries to get cute, beat him with a hammer and say, put it like this drawing because it's got to be like it's got to be. And, Tom, that brings up an interesting point because a lot of our listeners are relatively new to the water treatment industry. So they're going up, maybe being in the business less than a year, and they're talking to this pipe fitter who's been doing this for 30-something years, and he can't be taught anything else new. What advice would you give to that new water treater when they're trying to have that conversation with that pipe fitter? Well, first of all, you can get us on the phone, and we will fax and email and text them the drawing, and we will be your expert because we've been doing this a while, so we really kind of do know what our equipment does, and we will say things like, no, it has to be like this, and anything else is a failure. And the guy, even though you may have two years' experience, the guy on the phone with you, specifically myself or Paul or one of the other guys, has 15 to 20 years' experience. Now, the other thing we did in our new controllers is we included a picture, a color picture, in the screen. So for the for the young water treater on that, he just goes to our little documentation section, pulls it up on the screen, and he can just sit there and point at that and doesn't really have to say much. He can say, hey, that's from the manufacturer, and that's what it's supposed to look like. But th- we're your horsepower. We're the experts. It's our equipment. We know how it works best. And we're ready to go go to the mat with you guys so that you can succeed. And I'm going to be – I'm going to let the, 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 or the cat out of the bag here. My priority as an equipment manufacturer are the, the chemical water treatment or the water treatment specialist. You guys are my customer. So I need you to succeed. Um, the end user, while my concern is that he has a reliable piece of equipment, it needs to perform for you so you can succeed with him. So you are my priority. So when he, an end user gripes at me about something, I'm more concerned with what your concerns are and making you successful in that account. All of our equipment is oriented that way. All of our service is oriented towards the water treaters succeeding. And keep that in mind when you're dealing with us. We are on your side. We are not going to be adversarial. If you make it adversarial, however, uh, my equipment's not taking the heat for a failure that's actually an installation issue. And we will walk you through that. So. So we heard about how the Lakewood controller was uh, on the Nakanishi Towers for years and years and years and years, but even that one eventually needed to be upgraded. There was new stuff that came out. Uh, how often should a controller be upgraded? Oh, man. All right, so, um, so since our, our stuff lasts forever, um, <laughs> it's really difficult to, to – if something's working for you, it's hard to get away from and, and on a customer site – you know, we get the call from the guy that says, I'm just not, I'm not changing this thing out. We still have a ton of the little dial-up model, what we call 101, you know, one little screen, one little function. They're out there. Uh, as, a, as a water treater may go into that site and say, you really need to upgrade, and the guy's going to look at him and go, this works, leave it alone. That's, that's a difficult one. That's a hard sell. I, I think the real, 
thing becomes after seven, eight, ten, twelve years, it, it isn't that the, the controller is not reliable in doing his job, but man, you're getting up against that time frame where after years of use and abuse, she's going to give up the ghost at some point, and she ain't going to do it in front of you. She's not going to do it while you're there, and when she gives up the ghost. It's a it's a risk reward, you know. What's what's at risk if I take this controller and I turn it off right now? What happens? And how long can I be away from it before it becomes almost catastrophic? And that's the conversation you need to have with your customer. Now he may say, well, that could be any controller, but you could say, look, this controller's lasted 12 years, 13 years. I'm going to buy it from the same manufacturer, but a newer technology, same sort of support, and so forth. So let's talk about advancing this thing into the future. Now, the other thing you've got going for you when you talk about that interchange is with the new technologies, you, your remote communications, building integration is huge. Being able to talk directly to the building management system with not only one piece of data like the conductivity, but the conductivity, the relays, the water meter readings, alarm situations, all that stuff being pushed, pushed into their building management system and it isn't even that those guys are on site necessarily looking at it. The 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 new uh, um, new age of information says that there's a guy at a headquarters building that owns 15 of these buildings. He's got a nice cool dashboard set up. He's looking at all those building management systems, and he wants to see that data. He wants to know because he's he's liable for it. There's there's if one of these things goes down production wise, as it like a data center or something. He needs to know what caused it. He needs to know that it's heading in the wrong direction. Things are heading in the wrong direction. So this building management is uh, integration is key. And upgrading to that building management integration uh, with a controller capable of it is part of your sales pitch. Now, uh, let's we'll back up half a second here and talk about the business models. Uh, a water treater that's, that's kind of uh, – uh, I, I, I want to say that we talk about this in the training a lot, Trace. The guy that does the same thing year over year – you know what I mean? Versus the guy that's that's doing advancing his business every year. Uh, I, it's kind of explained in the guy that does the repeat thing, the same thing every year, fifty times, doesn't isn't really advancing himself or his business. He's just taking care of business. Versus the guy that's saying, "I want new technologies. I want to optimize my time. I want to optimize my chemical usage. I want to get more and more customers under my wing. I want to be able to take care of them quicker." That guy's changing. He's not doing the same thing every year. If you're not a do-the-same-thing-every-year guy, you've got to talk about remote communications with controllers. And that's a good conversation to have with your customer as well because your customer may want you on site 24-7. You can't afford to do that. You, there, you, there's not enough people and not enough uh, monetary justification for that. But the controller is you 24-7. So that with the, with the controller being you 24-7, now we have the ability with these modern controllers to pull in a data log of everything going on and send that data log out. We're also now able to remotely dial into these controllers and function them just like you're standing in front of them. So let's talk about that, that for half a second. If you get a call from a customer and he says, hey, Trace, the, the inhibitor that we're feeding, we marked it the other day and it's just not going down. And so the first inclination is you're you're driving over to plant B. It's like, all right, I got to cut my day short. I'm going to go over to plant A and figure out what's going on because these guys aren't introducing chemistry. In the modern era, instead, you pull up your smartphone, you zap into the controller over the 3G wireless, 
and you say to the guy, I'm going to go ahead and turn some things on and off. Are you standing there? And he says, yeah. So you turn on the pump. You say, is the pump pumping? He goes, yep. Okay, I'm going to turn on the blowdown. Is the blowdown blowing down? He says, yep. You, you notice the conductivity goes down. You go, all right, I made up water. But you also look at the screen, and it says the water meter accumulation didn't go up. So you let it run for a minute more, and you go, okay, buddy, here's what I think is going on. I think we've got something wrong with our water meter. Since I was feeding chemistry based on a water meter accumulation, what I'm going to do, I'm going to alter the setting. I'm going to feed it based on time instead. I'm going to give it a little extra juice. I tell you what, next Thursday when I come out there on my regular visit, I'll bring a water meter with me. We'll get you back up and running. Now, what did, what did that technology just do for you? It lets you keep your day. It lets you stay on target with your current workload. And when you show your customer that you took care of remotely, you're going to have the right part in your hand to keep him going. And as far as that customer is concerned, he's satisfied because he's up and running, and you didn't have to make your trip out there. You took care of him in minutes instead of hours, and now you're going to come out and service him correctly later. That's where this new technology comes in for the chemical water treatment specialist. We are going to let you optimize your time, respond accordingly, remotely access the controllers to make adjustments and tweaks and make valid decisions about how to continue on with your business that day. That's where we're at, Trace. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating what you can do now that you couldn't do years ago. In fact, some of my friends in um, AWT that are up in New York, they couldn't run their programs with the Legionella laws that they have up there without remote control. So, again, if you don't have this kind of capability on your accounts, it's coming. Yep, it, it is. And I, I, we've actually dealt with uh, – some smaller water treaters, and they won't go into an account where they can't do this. It's a, they, they just start with, we're going to install this controller. Yeah, it's a little more expensive, but this is what we're going to be. And if the customer fed back to them, well, we don't really want to start there, the water treater says, well, we're not a good match. Because this is my business model. This is how I support you best by having this remote access. And if we can't start there, then we're destined for failure right off the bat. So, you know, let me know when you're ready to play my game the way it needs to be played, and I'll help you. I'll support you. And uh, it's it's a hard road to take, but that model works for that water treater, and now he can service a bunch of accounts simultaneously that he wouldn't have been able to service if he had to drive to each account to check it out. Working smarter and not harder, huh? Exactly. And that's where all this sizzly, cool, functionary, color screen, graphic-y stuff is at. It's really great for the end user because it helps them look professional, feel professional, and know that they've got the highest technology device they can. But the real reason it's there is so that the water treatment company can succeed because we're going to hand them every piece of technology we can to optimize their time and their customer. Great point. Well, speaking of technology, one of my favorite features in the Lakewood controllers <laughs> is this feature called the Blackmore Equation. Do you care to tell our audience about that one? That's a very cool thing. Okay. Uh, I, I attended the classes. Uh, I treated the AWT classes initially when I went to them as, as, a, as a possible sales avenue. Uh, it was a chance to meet all the water treaters in the industry, the up-and-coming folks, the established folks. I would sit in the back of the class and, and – learn and relearn things and trace one time and I'm now again we we are equipment manufacturer we have people that that feed biocides based on a schedule everybody knows how it works we've included the feature forever and trace gets up and throws this this thing on the board and he says here's how you really figure out how to do a proper pre-bleed before you feed your biocide so that everything lines up at the end of the thing at the end of this feed time 
And I looked at what he wrote up there, and I went, huh, hang on a minute. That's right. <laughs> so, and, and by taking a couple of three factors into account, you could do some math and work out what you should do your pre-feed set points for, your pre-blowdown set point, based on the, the amount of time you were going to feed your chemistry and the amount of time you were going to have a lockout running, so that at the tail end of the process, you pretty much land right on your normal operating set point. So what we did was we took Trace's formulation after a quick call to him, and we included it, that function, that math functionality, in our Nexus control system. So if, if someone has a question about where I should set my pre-bleeds up, they just go to a second screen, punch in the tower information, and using the, the Blackmore method, I call it, it gives them the number. So that's the kind of the cool stuff that can go on today. And I, I, I really think it's a, a, a slick way to approach it, Trace. I really think the equation is just awesome. Well, I'm just happy that people are staying awake in my math class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tom, you are a very complex person, and there's some people out there that don't know that you are a famous writer. Would you care to tell our audience about that? Uh, famous. Uh, I don't know if I'd use famous. I, I, I am a writer. Infamous. I, infamous. I, infamous. Infamous I can live with. Infamous probably fits a little closer. Um, for, for years, I actually used to edit a motorcycle magazine, uh, a biker magazine. And uh, for the longest time, as, a, as, a, as an editor and a writer for that, people would poke me and say, uh, you, you should write a book. You should write a book. Um, so I did. I just uh, wrote the thing I love more, which is uh, I, I love riding my motorcycle. I love hanging out with my biker buddies. But when it comes to reading, I enjoy sci-fi. So uh, I am the, the uh, probably one and only biker nerd out there, and I write, <laughs> I, I write sci-fi and fantasy books. Uh, we, uh, it, it became a thing. I, I, apparently, I'm reasonably good at it, uh, and I actually was able this last time around to write one with my son. Uh, him and I have never physically been in the same room together, but we, through Skype and through the Dropbox, he's in Australia, we actually wrote a sci-fi book and published it. So uh, it, it's very cool. It, it's very relaxing. It lets your brain go. I'm a creative guy anyways. I, like I said, I've designed the uh, liquid equipment and, and part of that effort on a continual basis. So this just lets me kind of go crazy. And, and I, I have to say one of the side benefits of being an author is you can pretty much kill whoever you dislike without actually harming them. But they, <laughs> they, they can die a pretty grisly death in a book, and you can smile about it. So, <laughs> well, Tom, go ahead and give a plug for your books. What are their names? Um, the first book I wrote is called Threads. It's a space opera thriller, uh, the uh, base 2500, uh, the year 2500. Uh, we're romping across the galaxy. Uh, there's a, a, a psycho killer kind of going across the galaxy as well, doing some horrible things. And the USS Marshall Service is, is set after him to find him. They, but in the process, they discover a 300-year-old cover-up. And I will leave it there because that's where the technology and the, uh, the story takes off. Uh, the one thing I will say about this this book uh, is that uh, halfway through the book, when you think you've got it dialed in, uh, it all gets turned on its head, and you call me a very bad name as you're reading it because you have to go back and read some other parts in the book to make sure I didn't cheat, and I didn't. Uh, but it's a very, very cool book as for my first effort. It's about 500 pages, so it's, it's a thick read, what they call space opera. And then uh, Blood of NVIDIA, the one I wrote with my son, uh, that's uh, Aliens, uh, Vampires, and Werewolves, oh my. We, we took the, the genre of, of uh, paranormal horror and we made them alien species instead of your kind of your undead thing. And uh, we start with a, a race of uh, NVIDIAN vampires that conquered the galaxy years and years ago. And then uh, they disappear. 
and then uh, one of them reappears on Earth, and we pick up the story from there. And it, it's it was it was exciting and fun to work with my son on it. It's a really unique twist on the genre, and it's going to be actually a series of books. So kind of excited about it. We have a lot of newer water treaters that listen to our show. Is there any advice that you could give them to help them starting out? Uh, I'm going to say use the tools and use the manufacturers uh, for for your success. Whether it's the pump manufacturers talking to them and understanding the equipment, the the equipment manufacturers, uh, the AWT is a great resource. Getting on listserv is a great resource. There are a ton of tools and a ton of people that are willing to step up behind you and help you succeed and be a better water treater and have a better understanding of the tools that we're giving you. So that's kind of the first thing I'd I'd say. And the other thing I'd say is uh, make sure your customer sees you every time. I know that that's kind of a side piece of advice, but if you've been to the site, done your thing and left, and you didn't interact with a customer, I think you messed up. I think you need to shake hands, you need to walk around, and, and on every site visit, make sure your customer sees you and you interact with them so that they know you were there taking care of them and they had an opportunity to tell you about something that was going on, right or wrong. Uh, so that's that. don't be in a hurry. Don't be introverted. Uh, be outgoing with your customers and be ready to use the resources that are available to you. Just grab them up and you learn. So. Great advice. And, and, folks, I'm here to tell you, if you're not talking to your customers, somebody else is. Oh, yeah. So I like to end each interview with kind of a bonus question, just to try to get a little bit more insight into who our guest actually is. So are you ready for this bonus question? Sure, 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 sure. All right. So if you could have a conversation with anyone throughout history, who would it be and why? Man, um. Boy, there's some there's some low lying fruit in there, but I think that a lot of the people I would talk to, autobiographies and stuff, kind of let it out. I think the one that I probably would be the most interested in, I'd like to sit down with Ben Franklin. I think a conversation with that guy at the time when he was integral to the birth of the country, but also somewhat of an inventor, an inventor, a little bit of a ladies' man. And the political intrigue that he was part of, I think that would just be an excellent conversation. Uh, plus, I bet tossing back a few with Ben would just be an awesome experience. I think I think that's probably who I would have the most relevant conversation with, where, where they wouldn't be talking. I mean, having a conversation with Stephen Hawking would be great, except he'd be talking a mile over your head. And then, uh, you know, talking to Attila the Hun would be pretty much about moving things on the round on the map and who you were going to kill next. So I think I think Ben Franklin would be an awesome person to have a conversation with. Well, Tom, one thing's for sure, and you are an awesome person to have a conversation with. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, incredible advice and tips. Uh, honestly, I think if we have you back, you probably have a lot more that you haven't given us. Would you mind coming back at a later show? Uh, absolutely, and, and I hope that uh, anybody who listens to the show uh, probably emails you uh, any questions. Uh, uh, if nothing else, they can peruse our uh, tech letters, and if they've got uh, – we do newsletters and stuff. If they've got questions in there, love to get that feedback and, and come back again and answer those questions and kind of cover some of the ground that maybe we didn't cover today. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, our website is www.scalinguph2o.com. I'm going to be putting some links together on what Tom has recommended and some of the sites that he's recommended, and maybe even to your books. How about that? Oh, that'd be awesome, sir. I'd appreciate that. All right. Well, Tom, you've been a wonderful guest, and uh, I really appreciate the time you've spent with us. Thanks so much. 
Thanks, Trace. I, I appreciate it and much success on this. I really like the format. Well, how great is that? We have people that take time out of their day to come spend a little bit of time with us to make us understand something better. So thanks, Tom, for uh, doing that. And you better believe I'm going to have Tom back to tell us about some more tips and tricks that are going to make our lives a little bit easier. Now, Tom threw out a bunch of, uh, of ideas and parts and things that uh, you might not have had an opportunity to jot down. After all, we're driving around from account to account. So don't worry. I'm going to have a list of everything that Tom mentioned on our website, www.scalinguph2o.com. I'll even put some videos on there on uh, to links on how to use the multimeter. And I'll share with you the multimeter that we use here as a company. Nothing really fancy about it. It's fairly inexpensive, but we had some good success. So all of those things I want to put on the website so you don't have to worry about finding them. If not, it's a good starting point for you to start to build your toolkit. So you have everything you need right there when you're performing the service and you don't have to come back later. What a great tip to have some of these things in your tool bag so you can call the representative or customer service right there on the spot and get an answer before you even leave. If we didn't have to go back to accounts, how much time would that save us? That's all gonna be on the website. So please, after you've checked out all those notes on the site, please go over to the show ideas page and let me know what you wanna talk about next week, what type of questions you might have. Remember, I'm never going to tell your name over the air so you don't have to worry about being embarrassed. I have asked so many questions that I'm glad I asked, even though there was a risk of me being embarrassed by asking them. I might even tell some of those stories sometimes. Those were interesting, but I was better for it. You don't have to worry about that. I'm not gonna use your name on the air. Let me know what questions you have. I'll get them answered. Let me know who you want me to talk to. I'll get them on the phone so we can have this conversation. And I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much for joining us on Scaling Up.